Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the best-selling novelist Steve Kavanagh. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Anthony. Um, very nice of you to have me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so, for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Right. Well, um, I uh, I write mainly write a series. Um, which is a legal thriller series based in New York around a, a character called Eddie Flynn, who is a former con artist who became a trial attorney. And the books explore um, the fact that those two professions are very similar indeed. Um, I also write the occasional standalone um, thriller as well. But I'm about sort of five or six books into my career now. Um, so I'm just, I'm still, you know, pretty fresh and new to this game but i know a hell of a lot more than i did when i started off like that <laughs> so i'm not i'm not yet an old hand at this i'm still learning um but i'm very much enjoying it well and i mean you say you're not an old hand but six novels you know for a lot of i mean this is a, a matter of different genre expectations isn't it within the crime and thriller world six books isn't that much because we have people in our field who are up to like book 20 or something um, yes, but that's still a lot of words. Yeah, it's still a lot of words. Um, you know, there's, I've learned a lot in over the course of those books, um, but I always feel like it's, I still kind of feel like I'm brand new at this almost every time. Uh, that's just I, I. I never want to get the situation where I go, "Oh no, yeah, okay, I'm writing another book," and then it's dead easy and you blast it out. I always sort of think it's good to struggle with these things. You know, at least for me. Um, because the books actually get harder, I think, as you go along. I agree completely. And I mean, I would say if it's any consolation, but I'm sure it's no consolation. I've been doing this for 20 years and no, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with you that the day that it, the day that it does feel easy, the day that I feel, oh, well, I know how to do this now. It's fine. I'll just bang it out. is probably the day that I should quit because that's not a good attitude to have. Absolutely. Um, I think it was Harlan Coben that said, only bad writers think they're good. And oh. I, I think that holds a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, well, how did you get started then? Um, well, it was a long journey for me. Um, I always, uh, you know, loved reading, loved books, loved movies. But I never thought, when I was very young, I never thought I could ever write a book. You know, a book seemed like a huge undertaking and one totally beyond me. So when I got to the age where I wanted to start writing my own stuff, which was about age, from about the age of 18 to 21, um, I thought, well, I could write a screenplay. That'll be easier. Screenplays only, what, you know, 90, 120 pages, something like that. I could manage that. I couldn't manage 400 pages. So I thought, obviously that's totally wrong. And a screenplay <laughs> is just as hard to write as a novel. But I didn't know that when I was starting off. Um, so I wrote a couple of screenplays. I managed to get an agent in London and he never sold anything. And I thought this is a lot of work uh, for no reward. I'm obviously delusional. I'm just fooling myself and I quit. So I didn't write on anything then for then another 15 years. And then when I was about 36, 35, 36, my mum passed away quite suddenly. And she was the only person who ever encouraged me to write. And she was the big reader in our house. And, you know, she had given me lots of books to read. And 
and kept me going. So I thought, well, look, I'm going to have another go at this. Life is too short. I'm going to write a book that she would like. So I sat down. I didn't tell anyone I was writing. And I wrote my first novel on uh, the Carphone Warehouse is, is partially responsible for me being a novelist because I got a mobile phone contract. And with that contract, I got a little tiny uh, desk book or note, notebook, like a digital notebook. It was a compact and it weighed about 12 pounds. <laughs> it was like a brick and it was really, really tiny. And I wrote my whole first novel on that little tiny thing on like a free version of Word. Um, and the thing took about 20 minutes to turn on and it was just a nightmare. So, uh, but I pursued it. And the reason I did that is I didn't want to tell anyone I was doing it. So I wrote my first book. Um, first draft took me about six, nine months. And then I just kept revising it and revising it and revising it as I was sending it out, trying to get an agent, um, and that, well, that was an experience in itself, trying to get an agent. It's very tough. I don't know how you, how you got on. Have you, you know, did you struggle to get an agent at first? I, I, I have a very, I've had a very strange and circuitous career. <laughs> um, and I actually started out, well, I started out in freelance, uh, like sort of journalism about role-playing games. And then I got into comics and graphic novels and then video games. And it wasn't until the video games that I had an agent, but that was a specific video games agent, not a oh. literary agent. I actually ended up getting my literary agent uh, to negotiate my deal to write the, I, I write the graphic novel adaptations of Anthony Horowitz's Alex Ryder books. Um, and I, I got my agent through a friend who she also represents uh, to negotiate that deal. But from the moment that she became my agent, she was bugging me to start writing fiction as well. Uh, and so that's what I've wound up doing. But yeah, so it's, All right. you know, it's one of those, it's like breaking into any industry, isn't it? Is No two people's roots are the same. Well, I, I was very much the traditional route of, you know, I was sending my book out to literary agent slush piles. And I did that. It took me, you know, I think six, again, another six or nine months to do that. Um, and I got, I must have racked up maybe 50 plus 60 rejections because I, again, I sort of didn't think it was any good. So I would send the books out to sort of smaller agencies um, and medium, some medium sized agencies, first in the States, then in the UK, and never got anywhere. I, I would occasionally get a little bite. You know, there would be a rejection, but there would be something like, you know, you can write or this is good, but it's not for me. Um, so it was obvious and some of it was obvious like they have read it. And um, that was sort of keeping me going. And then the story was I had um, I had met an agent in Northern Ireland and uh, sent it out to them. And it was a, a two partner agency. And they, the first reader um, at the agency loved the first three chapters and said, send me the whole book. This is fantastic. But like, I don't make the decisions on thrillers or crime. That's the other partner. So I thought, well, this is good. And I had requests for full manuscripts before. You know, I would get a request for a full manuscript maybe one once a month. And that was kind of keeping me going. And um, I thought, well, look, I've been in this situation before. I'll just try some of the bigger agencies. 
So I sent out some uh, three or four queries to um, other bigger agencies in the UK. And I think I had this system. Every time I got a rejection, I sent out at least two more queries that day. Um, so it was a kind of a ball that kept rolling. It wasn't just getting hit with... Then, obviously, the rejection started to mount up in, with, with greater um, frequency. <laughs> but I think it worked for me doing that. Um, and then they, uh, the Northern Ireland agent came back to me. I'll never forget it. It was a Monday, Monday night. They sent me an email saying, um, you can write, but this book will never, ever be published. I'll never be able to sell it to a publisher. Just scrap it, start again, write something else, and I'll read it. And I was sort of devastated because I kind of trusted this agent. And I thought, well, that's me done, you know. Uh, and then on the Wednesday, I had uh, an offer from Curtis Brown and an offer from A.M. Heath, my old agents. And I went with A.M. Heath, and they took me on, working the book with me for a bit, and then... The book, The Defense, was sold at auction um, around the world. So it was just, that was a real fairy tale moment for me, you know. That's fantastic. And that was the book that the Irish agent had said, you'll never sell it. Yes. Um, pretty, like it didn't, the book didn't change a whole lot, you know, between him reading it and it being published. The first three chapters were hardly touched in the edit. So he, you know, he had read, and that's what he had read. Um, so, yeah. And then I realized that nobody knows anything in this business. Yep. <laughs> it's very much you're getting the right fit for your for your work and getting the right agent for you in terms of where you are in your career and what you want from it. Well, and I mean, being, as you said, starting out as a sort of screenwriting, uh, attempting to be a screenwriter, you know, surely you know the old William Goldman quote of literally that, nobody knows anything. And it's, it's yes, absolutely right. true in... Pretty much, ev well, I would say every entertainment industry, but very possibly every real industry as well. Um, but certainly every entertainment industry, there is no accounting for taste. It's like those tales of uh, A&R guys who never signed the Beatles, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you, you hear about the, you know, writers like this, like there's James Lee Burke, um, whose novel was rejected by 112 publishers. These were the days where you could send it out to publishers and every every publisher basically said no on your bike. And then a very small publisher, he managed to persuade him to take it on. And that book won the Pulitzer, the Lost Get Back Boogie. So, you know, nobody knows anything. Yeah. It's pretty good advice. <laughs> well, and that speaks to, I mean, to so it took you six to nine months to write the book on a crappy piece yeah. of hardware. Then it took you another mm. six months or so to get an agent. All yeah. the while, not, telling anybody that you're doing this were you married at this point i was yeah when i started sending out the agents my i let my wife read it and she really liked it oh okay so at that point she had read it it was just while yeah. you were writing it that point she had read it it was just writing it that sort of kept it secret and she was like, what are you doing and eventually i had to tell her i'm writing a book i've nearly finished it and she was going what you've written a book <laughs> because it's a very, and she's right to have that reaction. It is a bit of a strange thing. It's a bit like saying, darling, I think I'm going to become an astronaut. You know, <laughs> people think, oh, so he had a funny turn. Is he all right? Um, so, yeah, it is a strange thing to do. But um, 
And you do have to be in a strange mindset to do it. You have to be kind of healthily deluded enough to think you can do it, but not totally deluded enough. You know, you have to have um, some semblance of criticism there to know if this is just totally awful and you shouldn't do it. You know, so it's it's you have to be deluded but critical at the same time. Yeah, I, I gave a talk about that once actually called My Massive Ego, and it was uh, specifically about that strange balance that we have to strike between, on the one hand, thinking I'm going to write something that other people will want to read, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, being humble enough to know whether it actually is any good and to be a good judge of your own work and be able to edit it and not be so deluded that you can't take criticism. And it is a really difficult balance to strike. It is. But you, you do, it is important that you, it's almost, you're also sort of hypnotizing yourself a bit to say, you know what, I can, can do this. Um, and then when you are doing it, you have to have the wit to go, oh my God, this is awful. <laughs> Delete that paragraph, start again. You know, so it is a good bit. It's a tricky balance. That's why, you know, when, when you're starting off, beta readers are really good. Someone who you trust, who will tell you the truth, um, and who reads the kind of stuff or enjoys the kind of stuff that you're writing. If you have someone like that in your life, they're so valuable. Do you have a circle of beta readers? Uh, I only have uh, Mrs. Kavner, who reads all. She's the first person who reads all my stuff. And she gives me fantastic notes and um, she reads a lot herself, you know, and she reads the genre, she reads new stuff. So she knows what's out there and she's a really good judge of story. So, uh, and, you know, and she will have, you know, and certainly in the, after about book three, if I was going to write a book, we would talk about it, you know, what I'm going to write and we would spitball and she would give me ideas. So she was great. She's just an invaluable part of the process. Oh, wow. I, yeah, that's fantastic. So you actually get involved with a at the concept stage. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have an idea. I'll sit here. What do you What do you think of this? And she'll go, "No, that's terrible." <laughs> and she'll have she'll have an idea, and she'll go, "What do you think of this?" And I think, "Yeah, that's great." If I added this and this and this, that could really work. You know, she does have great ideas. Ideas is specifically one of the things I wanted to talk to you in particular about because all of your books, all of the ones that I've seen anyway, um, have a really strong hook. They have a good, you know, a good central premise that is also fairly easily summed up. Yeah. So I'm assuming that that's important to you. Yes, that's, that's my start off with. And I have to have that hook before I start writing the book. But then when I start writing it, that's all I have. I don't outline or anything which we can talk about, uh, but um, I need to have some kind of an intriguing question or some intriguing situation which I can then dump my characters in. And if I've got one that that's really juicy, it gives me a lot of confidence starting off. And it's just a trick then, it's just sustaining that. You know, is this good enough to sustain itself throughout, throughout a whole book? Um so yeah, that's really important to me. I, ideas are hugely important. When I was starting off, I got a three book deal when I started off and that really saved me because I, I had three books then to learn how to write, you know, and if I'd only got a one book deal or a two book deal, I think I might've struggled a wee bit, but I had that time and 
the, when I wrote the second, the first book is, oh my God, can I write a book at all? The second book, can I write this book again? Can I write and can I do it again? Or am I a one trick pony? And what I was thinking of with those books and the third book is, well, is this an idea that would be a good book? And that was the only question I was asking myself. What I was missing out was um, something that I'd heard from John Grisham. He talks to his wife a lot before he starts any project. The two of them talk a lot and then she'll read his work as he goes. But he asks himself two questions before he writes a book. One, is this a good story which will make a good book? And number two, is this a book which a lot of people will want to read? And that was the sort of second question I wasn't asking myself. Um, I'd somehow forgotten about that or it didn't occur to me. I thought well, writing a good book is enough. But then I realized when the sales of my first three books weren't good, that that's not good enough. You need to have a premise or an idea that will hook a lot of other people and a lot of other people will hear that premise and say, I want to read that book. And that's what I, I didn't have in the first three books. So what was the first book you did that, what was the fourth book? What was the first one where you sort of took that attitude? Uh, that was 13. Oh, well, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the book I thought, well, like this is, um, I'd had the idea for 13 when I was writing the first book and I thought, I'm nowhere near good enough to try and write that book. That was just too big for me at that time. So I'm glad I waited um, on it. I also sort of thought, well, at the end of my three-book contract, I have a good idea in my back pocket here. might be good enough to get me another deal. And it was um, because the first three books were, the sales were bad. Like The Play, my second book, sold 751 copies in paperback in total in the whole of the UK. 751 um, and that was it so uh, the the liar I think did a bit better it we sold 3,000 copies in the UK no that's pretty respectable these days that's that's kind of, kind of all right um, but I'm not setting the world on fire I'm not threatening the bestseller lists so 13 um, I thought and the, the premise of 13 is there's a serial killer Um uh, sitting on a jury. Um, why is he there? What's he doing on that jury? Um, and that was the sort of idea that I had for the book. And it would be an Eddie Flynn novel. So Eddie Flynn's involved in this trial and there's a serial killer sitting on the jury. Um, that gives me lots of questions, which I can then answer when I'm writing the, when I'm writing the book. But it seemed an intriguing enough premise. Um, and it turns out a lot of people did want to <laughs> read that book. <laughs> You know, so 13 has done, I think we're, uh, it's over 200,000 copies now in the UK. Oh, congratulations. So that's, yeah, that did really well, you know. Well, and it also won the uh, Thixton's best novel, didn't it? Won the Thixton's award, yeah. Um, and the third book, The Liar, won the Gold Dagger. So like the first three books, on that, all the books have been nominated for awards and if Two, three of them have won awards. So the books were good enough in quality and always got reviewed well, but they weren't selling. Mm. They didn't have that extra thing to, for a reader to look out on the shelf and say, oh. And that's the other thing I learned about ideas. A good idea makes a noise when you tell it to somebody. If you, <laughs> it's a really good, useful, it sounds stupid, it sounds totally stupid, but it's absolutely true. If you tell somebody a good idea 
or a really good premise and they want to know more, they'll, they'll go, oh, that sounds great. Tell me more about that. Or they'll go, ooh. That ooh noise is hugely important to me. So now I don't write a book unless it makes a noise. I know where I tell it to my wife. <laughs> She makes a noise, or I tell it to my agent that he makes a noise, or he swears at me. That's how I know, okay, I'm on a winner now. I was just going to say, I, it doesn't have to be an ooh noise, because I remember when I read first read uh, the premise for Adrian McKinty's The Chain, uh-huh. I made a noise. It wasn't ooh, it was what? Yeah. But that's still a good reaction. You know, any kind yeah, it's of... it's a reaction that gets a reaction. Any impulsive you know? reaction, yeah, is better than... Eh, Exactly. You need some kind of reaction because everyone's written a book about a killer and a cop chasing a killer or a killer doing something or there's been a murder. You know, in in crime novels, every old guy, there's a murder. So what? It's either done really well, written really well, or it's it's a unique voice or a different take on the genre. You have to have standout in some way. Um, You know, original ideas are hard to come by. Um, so yeah, I was lucky with, with 13 and it, it, it came out pretty well. It was the book that I, when I was writing it, it was very close to what I thought it could be. Do you know what I mean? It was mm. very close to my idea for what this book could be. Um, uh, so I didn't have to change very much of it. It came out pretty, pretty fast, pretty clean. That's always good when you can get, when you can get what's in your head down on the paper. Pretty close. Yeah. I mean, it's never a hundred percent, is it? But no, never is. The closer you can get it, the better you feel about it. Exactly. So I felt very good about that one, and I said I had a new editor at Orion when I had thirteen. So and I wanted Orion to treat me differently with this book. I wanted them to take notice because with a book like that, you need a bit of buzz, you know, and you need some. You need, you need a bit of media around it. You need a bit of um, people talking about this book. So I wanted to get Orion talking about it first, my own publisher, because they publish lots of books, you know, and they can't give attention to every book. Um, and there's different ways to do that. So I sent the manuscript into my um, editor. I printed the whole thing. I put it in a box and I put in 13 $1 bills, which were all <laughs> folded into the shape of a butterfly, which is a scene from the book. And I put those in the box and tied it up with red string and sent it into her. And my agent at the time had to phone her up and say, I'm sending you Steve's book. Don't panic. He's not a psychopath. It's not a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bomb. Yeah. And so then she's like, what the hell is this? Uh, and But that created a bit of excitement about reading that. You know, it wasn't just an email. There's a new book. Bye-bye. Or tell me what you think. It was something unusual, something to get them to sit up and take notice. And thankfully they did. And they backed it the whole way. All right, let's get on to this question of outlining versus not outlining, because I am, as regular listeners will know, I am an inveterate outliner. I am, you know, the guy who will write and rewrite my outline many, many times before I start actually putting the words together. And I do that so that I can get through the first draft really quickly, um, you know, sort of power through it and then tidy it, go back and tidy it up and have it all, you know, sort of make it make sense and what have you. But you don't. So how, I mean, you you say you have the premise and you start, so you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know all of the main characters. No, no idea. Um, it sounds really strange. What I would say about process is 
it doesn't matter what way you do it as long as it works for you. No, absolutely. I'm a big advocate of that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like I heard, I would listen to your previous episode with Vaz, Vazim Khan, and Vaz was talking about Lee Child and says, well, apparently Lee Child doesn't outline. I think he was being, you know, sort of flippant there. But now I, I know Lee, and uh, this is really good uh, book on craft for your listeners. There's a book called Reacher Said Nothing by Andy Martin. And Andy's a journalist and academic and got to know Lee. And he said, I have this crazy idea, Lee. I would like people you say, you say you don't outline your books. A lot of people don't believe you. I want to sit in the same room as you, behind you, as you're writing your next book. And I'll write a book about it. Um, what do you say? And Lee's sort of, Lee's a hugely intelligent guy and a completely voracious reader. And he thought that would be interesting. It's kind of a meta book. It's a book about a it's a book about a guy writing a book, but at some point in that not in that uh, book, it becomes a book about a guy writing a book about a guy writing a book. If you know what I mean. But it's <laughs> yeah. it's really fun read. It sounds boring. It's really fun. But Andy's right. You know, uh, uh, Lee just sits down on September first, and he has to have the right the first line at least on that day. And then he will write every day. He doesn't know what the book is about. He doesn't know what the next paragraph is. Never mind what happens in the next chapter. And I'm like that. I'll have, I'll, before I start, I'll have an idea of where would be a good place to start the book. What would be a good opening scene? Something interesting for the reader. And then I'll, I'll start writing. Um, and usually it's my premise that gives me the idea of how to open it. So where does the story begin? Um, and where does it have to begin? And then I'll, I'll go from there. And then I won't know what's in the next chapter. Um, I won't know what the end is or the middle. Sometimes I'll have an idea. I wrote a book called Twisted, which is a standalone novel. Um, and it's kind of a meta thriller. So it, Twisted is about a... Uh, a multi-million selling mystery writer called J.T. LeBeau. And no one knows who J.T. LeBeau is. It's a pseudonym. And he's never been photographed, never been seen. And the book then follows um, a husband and wife. They're newly, relatively newly married. Marriage isn't going well. And they're struggling for money. They've moved out into the middle of nowhere. And the husband's always away and the wife finds in his desk drawer, she's having an affair. She finds in his desk drawer a bank statement um, in the name of J.T. LeBeau Enterprises and there's $20 million in the account. And she thinks her husband is J.T. LeBeau. But the book is written as if you're reading a J.T. LeBeau novel. (laughs) So there's an introduction from J.T. LeBeau at the start. and So it's a book about an unreliable narrator written by an unreliable narrator. Well, and full of unreliable narrators. I've read Twisted, and I, I will tell listeners that it is absolutely... I don't want to give too much away because I would encourage people to read it, but literally every every time I thought I had a handle on what was happening in that book, you pulled the rug out from under me. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. That's awesome to hear that. Because uh, there is one kind of a biggish twist that's kind of in the middle of that. And when I started that book, I knew that was going to happen. No idea what happened after that. 
Um, and I'm not giving anything away. It's called Twisted. There's lots of bloody twists. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's kind of about twists. So, so so for that one, I had that central idea. Um, for the book that's coming out soon, 50-50, um, it's coming out in July in the UK, um, I had an idea for something for the start of that book. Um, again, something to discuss with my wife. I had an idea for something that might happen in the middle or might not. But that's all I knew when I started the book. But I can still write quite quickly. Um, so uh, 13, I took a break. What I do is I take a break. I write about 20, 30,000 words and I stop. And I go back and look what I've written. Or if I get really stuck, I will uh, have to take a break. And I took a break for maybe a week, two weeks maybe, um, during the writing of 13. But when I come back to actual writing time, 13 was about six weeks. Oh, wow. That's really quick. And I was still working full-time then. 50-50, because um, I was a full-time lawyer, 50-50 took about six months. That was a long one. I started a book four weeks ago, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. So it'll be another one come out in about six weeks. I'll be finished the first draft. That's really – what is your sort of average daily word count then? Well, it varies. Some days it's 500 words. Some days it's two or three thousand. I just keep going. If I get into it, I just keep going. Um, and uh, if I'm enjoying it, I can just get into a flow and I go. But I'm at it, you know, um, you know, two or three hours, four hours a day at most. You know, I'm not hammering at this for ten hours straight. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll go away um, on a writing retreat. I can get fifteen thousand words done on a weekend, easy. Oh wow! Um, some sometimes more. So those are really good because it's really they're really intensive. Um, so I'll sometimes do that. Not haven't done that for this one. Um, so yeah, I do write very fast because I'm telling myself the story as I'm writing, and I sort of think if there's pace in the writing, there'll be pace in the reading. Um, and I kind I kind of want to know what happens next as well. Um, <laughs> if the book is is it takes a longer time to write. It's maybe much more difficult, or I'm doing, trying to do something technical, which is slowing me down. So, well, when I finish the draft, I'll go back and I'll do another draft of it. But that will only take like you know two weeks at most. Yeah. Um, I'll go through that, and then I'll let my wife read it. She'll give me notes. I'll do another draft then, and then I'll send it off to my agent. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So that is, I mean, in different ways, but that is pretty much the same approach I have in terms of beta reading. Yeah. In that I get my, I call it a zero draft, but yeah, that first rough draft done, then I revise it before anybody else sees it. Yes. Then I give it to my beta readers and then I do another draft based on their notes. That is what then goes to my agent. Yeah. So, um, when you say take a break, uh, like, you know, when you said you, you took a week off and so come back to it, do you literally just not write during that time? Yeah, I'm thinking about the book. Um, I'm thinking where I can go, and I'm thinking about what I've written. Um, I, there are quite a lot of twists in my books, you know, some more than others. And for that, because I don't work anything out beforehand, I have to then see, well, like, is there an opportunity to do something interesting here with the story I've told so far? So I have to keep you know, reminding myself of what I've written. So I keep notes as I go along. Um, but I will look at that and see, okay, is there a way of using what I've got there in a different way in the next part of the book? Or is there something that I've written which is a natural setup 
for something that could, could come later. Um, and sometimes you know, I just get stuck and I'll have to stop and think about what I'm doing and where I'm going because I don't genuinely don't know what happens next. Um, or I've written myself a problem which I don't know how to solve yet. So, for example, in 13, and again, it's not really a spoiler, in 13, uh, Eddie Flynn's representing a guy um, on trial for murdering his wife and their head of security. And in the, in the head of security in his throat, there is found a dollar bill butterfly. Um, there's DNA on the butterfly. That's uh, the defendant's DNA and another set of DNA. And the DNA that's on the dollar bill is from a guy who was executed for murder in a different state about eight years before the dollar bill was printed. Now, that's a really interesting dilemma. How did that guy's DNA, he's been dead for eight years before the dollar bill was printed, how did his DNA get on that dollar bill? Um, when I woke that, I had no idea how his DNA got on the dollar bill. <laughs> I had created a problem for my character and myself, and I have to now work out well, what is the simplest and most intriguing and interesting way that that could have happened that the reader will never know or never guess? So I could I had two or three different uh, ideas, but I was finding the best one and the one that fit. So sometimes I have to just stop and think um, about where they should go next or what could possibly happen. Um, but it's all it's all kind of work. At this sort of stage, would you? discuss that with your wife or do you keep no. all this to yourself when you're thinking about like what's the best you know way to approach it or the best twist or something i keep it all to myself um occasionally i think in one book i, I ask my wife what would i do or what would be good um but most if i'm really stuck i'll ask her but mostly i don't want to spoil anything for her when she's reading it right because i want a genuine first reaction about how all this plays out so what would you do, I mean, and has this ever happened, where you might give that version that, you know, that you're happy with to your wife and she halfway through goes, oh, yeah, I saw that coming. Oh, yeah. Well, if she does if she does say that, then I'll go, okay, well, I need to do something with that. You know, if she sees something, then I'll need to change it because she's very good at spotting stuff like that. Most of the time she doesn't spot things. You know, I'm pretty good at keeping secrets from the reader. Um, most of the time, when she's, you know, she's editing my stuff, it's there's an inconsistency or the character's not right or something doesn't make quite sense. Something doesn't make sense rather than I saw that coming. Right. So it's mostly me explaining things more and taking the reader by the hand more. So you said you take notes while you write. Yeah. But you're not, they're, they're presumably notes so that you can remember, I don't know, you know, what a character did or what somebody's called or whatever. But are you also writing down, because as you're writing, I assume ideas for how to tackle future things that you can see coming will, you know, will occur to you. Do you write those down as well? Yeah, I do. So I have a notebook beside me at all times and I will write to, like, I'll have an idea. I will say, okay, here's something else. You'll get a little spark. There's a point in when I'm writing the book when the, the real book will just drop. So what I'm, the, the big twist that I'm looking for or 
something to flip the story and tell, reveal what it's really about, the sort of the core of what this book is about, and some interesting surprises on the, on the climax, the conclusion of it. That will just drop, and then I write that down. That's a great day. Because then I know, okay, I've, I can finish this thing now. Um, so, yeah, I'll write that down, or ideas about what could happen next. But mostly it's just writing down who the characters are and what happens in each chapter. Um, because if sometimes I'll, I'll write a character, and because it's the first draft, they're not that well honed yet in my mind, and they'll be become more real in the second draft. I do most of well, not most, but I do a lot more character work in the second draft. The story doesn't really change much in the second draft. It's more fleshing out characters, more um, more descriptions and making everything a bit more real. Uh, that does sound similar to how I work, yeah. It's, uh, I, uh, Maya Rodal, when I spoke to her on the show about this sort of thing, she called it writing in layers, which I thought was a really good, yes, uh, you know, very nice simile, a nice way to put it. That's right, Absolutely. I assume you must be a linear writer then. You write each chapter as it goes. You don't jump around. No. I, I, do, I don't understand how anyone could do that. I see, I do I that. know some writers <laughs> do it, but that's just <laughs> bizarre to me. No, I'm very much linear. <laughs> well, you, you need an outline. Yeah, if you're going to do that, you need an outline. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, what, let's talk about the mundane stuff. Like, you know, what's a typical writing day for you? Where do you write? Do you have music playing? You know, you know how long do you do it for? That sort of thing. Well, I, now, now I'm, I'm in a new house now, about two months. So I have my own office, which is great. Um, I haven't really got into a typical writing day yet um, because we've only just moved house. There's this, you know, whatever's going on in the world at the moment. So yeah. it's whenever I can get two or three hours to get down at it. Um, I prefer to write in the morning now. I used to be a night writer. And I still do work at night. But I think it's going to be a bit easier during the day now. Um, before that, uh, when I gave up my job, I would go out and write in coffee shops. Um, and I would always, nearly always listen to music in coffee shops. I could deal with the ambient noise, and even in the office now, a lot of times I'll put on music, just on the headphones, and it can be um, lyrics, um, or it can be instrumental or whatever. I have a sort of a writing uh, playlist on Spotify, um, and I some like I'm at the moment I'm writing a lot to the Social Network soundtrack um, for the soundtrack for the movie The Social Network. It's, it's really good. Um, sort of electronica stuff, but it's like, there's no lyrics and it's not invasive, but it's quite moody. Um, so I'll do that. Before then, when I was writing full-time, I was writing at night. I didn't really listen to music. I was just, I would start work at 10 o'clock at night and work for three hours. But I assume that was also partly because you have uh, young children, I believe. So I have young kids as well, yeah. Yeah, so you couldn't make too much noise because they, you know, they go to sleep. Exactly. And I was in the kitchen, so I had to keep it down. Um, so now it's much, it's much easier. Um, if I'm listening to music, I'll put on the headphones. I think you can surprise yourself if you're really flowing. You don't even hear the music. No, that's It's true. just something to tune out everything else that's going on. It is, at least it is for me. And it just lets me um, get into the, the flow. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm the same. I listen to a lot of ambient, classical, electronica, all non-lyrical stuff. And yeah, after a while, you don't even, which is why I listen to a lot of ambient, because it's designed to kind of fade into the background. Yeah. Uh, once you get into that flow, and yeah, as you say, you don't, you don't even realise it. But also, and speaking to the quality of flow and getting into that rhythm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned like you know previously when you had a day job you would just work at your kitchen table because so many people get obsessed and i confess that when i started out i used to be guilty of this as well they get obsessed with this idea that your work setup has to be absolutely perfect and you must uh you know you can't possibly write if you're not at your desk and all that sort of and there is i mean i advocate for routine there is a, a a certain you know there's a lot to be said for writing at the same time in the same place every day and making it part of a routine. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you don't have the opportunity to do that, it can't become an excuse. It can't become a crutch. Exactly. No, I found um, I could write at my kitchen table at night. Um, and that was, that was just me. I just worked. It was the only opportunity I had to write. So it was the only table we had in the house where it was in the room with somebody <laughs> sleeping in it. So that was that was my choice made for me. Um, then when I've, I gave up work, I didn't want to sit at the kitchen table during the day um, when my wife was there because uh, she well she didn't want me there either. So she sent me out. So I either go to li- I would either go to libraries or I would go to coffee shops, and I could work very well in a library. I love libraries, so I would work very well in the library or in a coffee shop. Coffee coffee shops are preferred because there's coffee there. Um, lots of fresh coffee there, so I would do that. Um, and that was a really productive time. I'm just trying to find my rhythm in the new house here. Um, it's a bit difficult with, because of just of what's going on, but mostly I'm, I'm during the day and whatever hours I can get when I'm not with the kids. But I do try, I, I, I like trying to write every day for two or three hours. Yeah. And I don't worry too much about word count. Ah. I'm completely the opposite. I focus entirely on word count and if it takes me, well, it depends how I'm feeling. Like my my word count target is 1500 words. And if I get that done in two hours, but I'm not feeling it, then that'll be it. Um, You know, or if it takes me six hours, I'll grind it out. But obviously, as you said yourself, the best days are when you get that done in two hours and you're still feeling it and you've still got the energy and you're in the flow and you just keep going. And before you know it, you've written three or 4,000 words. Those are the really good days. Those are really good days. They're, they're few and far between for most of us. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're awesome. They're great. And sometimes it's a real struggle, you know, and if I am really struggling and I've only got 500 words, I'll say, okay, well, today was not a good day. Um, to, tomorrow will be better. Um, Neil Gaiman did a brilliant thing. I heard him talking once about writing. And he said, what, what you want to do is imagine your best writing day, um, where you were, what you did, the routine, as you were saying, and then try to have a groundhog day every day after that. Where you do exactly <laughs> the same thing. And it, it, when he put it like that, even though it makes it so clear and so simple, you do want to try and have that. And a routine certainly helps. He was a very good writer, a friend of mine. Um, I'm sure you know him too, Mason Cross. Mm. And he says he tries, no matter what, 500 words a day. And that's him. He'll have a novel. 1,500 words a day, I think is fine because you're an experienced writer. Anyone starting off, aim for 100 words a day and build up. 
to build up. But if you can get 500 words a day minimum, you're going to have a novel pretty pretty fast. Um, but like was what Anthony Trollope did, I think he did like five pages a day, every single day. And if he finished the novel on page four, he would get another page and start the next one, just so he had his five pages. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... That's the the five pages before breakfast. I call that. Ah, oh, yeah. And that's fine if you're writing scripts. Uh, and when I was doing comics, you can do that as well. And obviously, screenplays. You know, it's kind of. And back in the days when everybody worked on typewriters, you could measure everything by pages. But these days, it, you know, when you're doing prose, it's impossible to do that. Which is why I go for the word count instead. But it's the same principle. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And the 500 words thing, again, this is something I've got a book coming out later this year called The Organized Writer, which deals with a lot of this sort of stuff. Uh, and I, I mentioned in there that 500 words a day sounds like nothing. You say that and a lot of people will go, well, that's you'll never get a book finished at that rate. But actually, you will. You'll get a book written yeah. in like 10 months. Yeah, easy. You know, as long as you stick at it. As long as you stick at it. This can, and again, I don't have this. Some people say you must write every day. I'm quite relaxed. Some days I won't write. I just won't get to it. There'll be too much other stuff going on and I won't try not to feel bad about it. Um, but I want, the thing is, it's so important, when you're, especially when you're starting out, but I also think it's really important for writers, you know, kind of like in my situation. Yeah, I think you have to have a real hunger to be at your desk and to get those words, to get the words down and to get this book going and make it good. You have to be really hungry to produce something that's really worthwhile and really good. Um, and if you have that, that will keep you going. But it's some, that's something to be tapped into, I think. I, I agree completely. So when you come to revise, it sounds like your revisions aren't world-shaking. You know, they're not kind of, you're not ripping whole bits of the book out and starting all over again. No, not at all. My second draft is um, I, I, I tend to underwrite in the first draft. So the second draft will go up usually by between five and 10,000 words. And most of that is character, scene description, explanation, um, where it's needed. Um, and also I tend to, I, I think a sentence in my head faster than I can type it. So quite often in my work, there's missing words <laughs> where I think I've written an entire sentence, but I haven't. I've missed out two or three words. So I have to go back and put those in. Um, but I write up and then when my wife sees it. I'll tinker with it a little bit. But again, it's just tinkering. And then my agent will see it and there'll be more work on it then. But it's not so far, touch wood, it hasn't been ripping stuff up. The most I think I've edited, apart from my first novel, the most I've edited a book since is I took about 3,000 words out of 13. There was a subplot about a, a bribery thing, which I took out. But other than that, it was pretty much as it was first written. I don't tend to rewrite and agonize over stuff as long as I can get that story moving. Um, Twisted, there was quite a bit of work on the ending uh, and different ideas. And that the, the ending had to be changed and that there was quite a bit of work in Twisted. See, that's, that seems crazy. Having read that book, it's so, there are so many twists and everything kind of, you know, it's like a, a beautiful puzzle. Everything kind of interlocks together so well that the idea that it might have had a 
different ending <laughs> originally just seems crazy to me. Yeah, it was different ending, um, and it was much darker. And <laughs> I think the the feeling was, well, no, no, there's a better way to do it. And I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, there is a better way of doing it, and that's the ending that's in the book. So, how much? And again, trying to I'm t- trying to talk around this without giving out spoilers. How much of the previous, you know, the sort of rest of the book, did you have to change in order to accommodate this new ending? Very little. I had to write about another thousand words at the end. Um, and I tinkered with a couple of little things, changed, you know, 100 words here, 100 words there. Well, there was no whole chapters being ripped out. I, I, I agonize over, over doing lots of work on a book. It really annoys me to have to do that. <laughs> no, um, I'm the same. So I try not to if I can avoid it. <laughs> this is why I do all these drafts before I send it to my agent, because I, I don't want to revise it again. <laughs> yeah. Do you read while you're in the middle of writing a book? Do you read other books? Yes, absolutely. Because I know some authors who avoid it. I don't, but I know some authors avoid it because they're worried that they might unconsciously, you know, sort of start writing in another author's voice or take things that they've read and rewrite them into their own story. Well, that can happen. Um, But that's perfectly natural and normal and it should not be avoided. Uh, in my view, um, any writer that says I don't read fiction because I'll all be, as you say, I'll be totally influenced or I'll end up putting something in. Um, that's just you being influenced by a much or a unique voice, probably, or a story. Um, you know, uh, don't worry about it. You're not, uh, when you're writing a book, you're not reinventing the wheel. Nobody ever has. You're telling a story and parts of that story will be familiar or have been used before, but you're doing it in your own unique way. Uh, and being influenced by other writers when you're a young writer is a good thing. And if you're finding that their voice is coming into your work, guess what? That's how all writers start off. Mm-hmm. You learn by, you're a, you're a product of the writers that you've read and you, and that you've enjoyed and kind of become part of you. So if I read my first novel now, I can see a lot of Lee Child in there. Um, uh, all my work, you know, I think nearly every book, there's been at least one broad sheet review, which uh, which compares the writing to Elmore Leonard. Um, sometimes favorably, sometimes, well, he's just not as good as Elmore Leonard. <laughs> and that's totally fine because I, that's, Right, that's not an insult. That's not an insult. You know, that's like saying if you're a golfer, well, he's not as good as Tiger Woods. (laughs) Of course he's not. But uh, that goes without saying. But I can see all of that. And, you know, Ross MacDonald, John Connolly, Michael Connolly, Patricia Highsmith, uh, who I only came to relatively late, um, Highsmith. But I can see elements of her stuff in my work now and that's totally fine i'm not stealing anything it's it's influence you're of course you're a product if you read um john d mcdonald's travis mcgee series you'll see a lot of the jack reacher books in those in that series you can see the almost the the nuclear dna of that series uh, and some elements of style and structure in some of Lee's books, and that's totally fine. 
And Lee didn't copy it. It's just a huge influence for him. And that's only right. You know, it's the same way with artists. You know, um, artists get influenced by other artists. That all feeds into their work and turns into something else. So I think to avoid that and shut that off, you're cutting off a source of influence, um, which could make your writing better or much more unique. And I would sort of counsel against that. What I think a lot of these writers think when they're doing it is, it's a friend of mine, a writer, I won't name him, but um, very talented guy, and he talked about this publicly. Um, he said he was reading a Dennis Lehane book. He read Mystic River, and he couldn't write after it. It really hit him like a ton of bricks. Like, you know, what the hell am I doing? Look at this beautiful masterpiece. And it's a bit like if you're if when you're in the middle of writing a book, it's like having your car with the engine torn out, lying on the floor, all bits everywhere, and some <laughs> bugger drives past you in a Ferrari. That's what it's like, but it's supposed to be like that, and that's totally fine. Um, but no, I would always advocate read as much as you can while you're writing. Reading only is a good thing, I think, um, and can only make your writing better. You really learn how to write through reading writers who are better than you or different than you. Um, and that's, that's how you learn, I think. So if you don't, if you stop reading, you're never going to get any better. I don't think. I completely agree. I mean, I, yeah, I'm not advocating that position, but I know writers who, because like I say, I read while I'm writing. I know writers who have taken it. Uh, Mark Billingham actually. Uh, said one of my favourite things on this. He once said, would you trust a chef who didn't eat? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which I thought was, yeah, really good way of putting it. But the other thing, because uh, you're right, we are all products of our influences and because all our influences are different, inevitably we are different in the way, you know, you and I could read the same book or watch the same movie, but because of our influences up until this point, we will interpret it and receive it differently yeah uh that's inevitable so that's part of who you are and who, what your style is but the other thing that i think uh young stroke beginning writers may not consciously think about when they're sort of you know discussing this kind of thing is that you can change it you can always go back and change it um i i'm a huge fan of william gibson and inevitably, whenever I've just finished reading his latest book, for the next month, everything I write will sound like William Gibson, uh, except not as good. But, you know, <laughs> that's it's just how it goes. But that's fine because they're just my first draft. And yeah. then when I go back and reread it, I go, oh, yeah, that that's way too me trying to be Gibson. And I'll just change it. It's, you know, you can do this. Exactly. You've got a time machine. Right. You can yeah. go back in time and you can fix whatever whatever problems that have occurred earlier on in the manuscript. Um, it's brilliant freedom being able to do that now with the software we have these days. And your point about the your metaphor with the sort of you know, the, the engine, broken down car and a Ferrari goes past. The other thing that to realize is that that Ferrari was once a collection of nuts and bolts as well. Exactly. You know, what you're seeing there is the final polished product. You're not seeing everything that went into making it. When Lehan submitted Mystic River... Um, he sort of thought my career is either over or um, something uh, something else is going to happen. But he really thought he was done for when he wrote that book. 
Uh, you had no idea uh, how it would be, how well it would be received and how it would change its life. And there's a lot of writers like that. Um, but you have to, you have to read because there's so many different ways of, so many different techniques and crafts that you have to learn um, when you're writing a book. And there's so many different ways of doing it, different voices and POVs and structures. And um, if you're not opening yourself up to all these different things all the time, how are you ever going to get better? I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned Neil Gaiman earlier, actually. he uh, That talk that I'm, mentioned that I did about sort of, you know, the balance between ego and humility. I started that with a screenshot of a tweet from Gaiman when he turned in that uh, Doctor Who script that he did before it was filmed. And he tweeted that he just turned it in and was really nervous about how it would be received. And you can imagine the internet was aghast. Like how? You're Neil Gaiman. How could you possibly be nervous about this? Of course, it's going to be brilliant. And, you know, you and I know, any writer knows, but the audience doesn't. He had to sort of patiently explain, no, 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 that feeling never goes away. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> exactly. But that feeling is good. That's a good sign to be nervous about something. Yeah. That means you've you've stretched yourself in this piece of work. It's good to be nervous, I think. Yeah. It's, you've got to have a little bit of fear, wondering, yeah. can I do this? Can I pull this off? Absolutely. All right. So uh, let's start to wind this down then. Steve, Tell me, what do you think you're pretty good at? What do you sort of quietly, you know, you write and you think, yeah, hey, actually, I know these these bits of the book. I know how to do this. I'm pretty good at it. Oh, um, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I'm, I think I'm reasonably good at humor. I have there's a little bits of humor here and there in the books. Um, I think I can pull off a twist now. I think I've learned how to do that. Um, and what, what I particularly enjoy doing, although there's not so much of it in my work these days, um, is action scenes. I really enjoy uh, writing action scenes, and I think I can do oh, that. Actions, action scenes is the one thing that I hate. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. How come? Yeah. I, and I, I'm, I'm told that I write pretty good action scenes, but I hate writing them. Why? Because there's so much stuff to do in them. There's the sort of the choreography and the logistics and trying to make it exciting for the reader. And I don't know. I just, I, I am not at all confident. Okay. I'll give it to give you a tip here. Um, if you want to write really good action scenes, there are two writers, I think who've in the past sort of 30 years have written the best action scenes. One is Lee Child and he has a technique for it which I'll tell you in a moment. And the second one is David Gemmell. Oh. Uh, the fantasy writer. Yeah. Now, if you, now, I'm going to tell you two interesting facts about Lee. Lee grew up in Birmingham in a really hard school, or hard, he lived in a tough place, and Lee Child is a tough guy. Like, I wouldn't mess with Lee. Um, uh, he's a tough guy, and he knows what it's like to be in a fight. David Gemmell, um, when he was starting off, uh, before he was a writer, he was a bouncer in a pornographic movie theater. Oh, wow. <laughs> from a very young age. And he knew exactly what it was like to be in a proper fight. And they have really tapped into that and put that down, you know, on paper. Um, you know, there's a lot of thriller writers who you sort of think, well, 
the you know, person, you know, reading the reading of their some of their some of their scenes, you think this person's never been in a proper fight or doesn't know how to fight, and it just totally it's, it reads very plainly. Um, it doesn't ring true. Lee's technique is you write the fast things slow and the slow things fast. Uh, I've heard him say that. Yeah. So that can be if Reacher has to get from you know New York to L.A. That can take a paragraph, but a punch can take a page, <laughs> and it's slowing stuff down. But read David Gemmel. David Gemmel writes the best action scenes I have ever, ever read, um, and there's huge amounts of emotion in his action scenes as well, and they're incredibly exciting, fast-paced, but you're totally invested. Writing violence, you know, you do want to write about a victim, but you, you know, that's different. That's not action. Action, there is, there is an expected outcome. Um, but Gemmel, which, which set up these amazing fights, and sometimes they, they would go on for two or three pages. Sometimes it's a paragraph, but it's just the most exciting thing you've ever read. And your heart's pounding and brilliant, brilliant. So I would recommend Waylander and... Legend, and um, there's a brilliant. Uh, if you want to read about a boxing scene, I think it's one. It's um, Dross the Legend. Is it no? The, the Dross the Legend of Death Walker. There's a brilliant, brilliant boxing scene um, in that book, which is just fabulous. And it just takes all the technicalities out of it and puts in just excitement and pace. Um, and you can see how they've done it because some sentences are one word, two words, and then a huge, big, long, breathless sentence with so their injecting pace and excitement, mm. even as to how this, this thing is laid out. So I've read those passages and read those books so many times that it's just, I'm, yeah, and I am influenced by that. But that has taught me how to write my own stuff um, and make it exciting. That's interesting that you said about emotional action, actually, because that is something that I try to do. Um, you know, I yeah. try to make it's it's always about. I mean, I tend to write in a limited third person, and so I'm always you know focused on what the main character or the character having the fight, the POV character, is feeling and thinking about, uh, and the sort of stress that you know an action scene puts them under. Um, so let me turn that around on you then and ask what parts of right what do you wish you were better at. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, <laughs> um, literally everything. No, because, because I mean, let's you know, putting aside modesty for a moment, you're a best-selling, award-winning writer. A lot of people will look at you and go, "Well, this guy can do it all," and that's why I ask this question because I want people to realize that no matter, again, like this thing with Neil Gaiman being worried about his script, no matter who you're looking at, no matter how successful we are, we have these. We still have these worries and these insecurities, and we're always trying to get better at something. Absolutely, I'm trying to get better at everything, um, and I honestly mean that. I'm trying to get my scent on a molecular level to get my sentences better, more melodic, or trying to inject some more structure and rhythm into paragraphs, and looking at how the page is laid out, even. Well, have I got enough white space on this? I'm thinking about everything. Um, I'm trying to be more economical. Can I say more with an image here 
or do I have to describe it? And I'm constantly learning. And I think when I, if I stop doing that, then I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lost completely. Um, I'm always trying to make everything better. And I do struggle with everything, you know, every day. And in terms of specific parts that I struggle with, oh, there's so many, so many. <laughs> On every single level, I'm trying, always trying to get better at what I'm doing. And I do that through my own craft, through trying different things, through reading um, and reading books on craft as well, which I often look at or I'll, I'll look at the masterclass stuff online or I'll listen to writers talking and how they do it, things they have learned. I'm totally fascinated by the entire process. And I, you know, pretty much most days I love what I'm doing. If I'm sitting down at the, com at the computer and I'm writing, I'm usually really enjoying it. Um, and that's nothing to do with quality. I just like telling stories. Um, it's just it's just something that gives me a lot of pleasure. But I'm always always trying to get better at it, trying to do something I've never done before, and make everything you turn everything up to eleven on every book. Along those lines, then last question: What's the last book that you read where the writing, the not necessarily your favourite last book, but the writing itself really impressed you, and why? Well, I'll give you two. I'm usually deeply impressed either by some brilliant technical feat or voice. There's a book called Blacktop Wasteland by Sean Cosby, which will be out this year. And the Sean's voice was just incredible. Um, and you know what I'm talking about when I say, but some people, some writers, young writers starting off think, what is voice? I don't really understand what voice is. Read Delmore Leonard or Patricia Highsmith and you'll know instantly what voice is. Because um, that's not something that you can make it better. But quite often it takes a while to find that. Um, but this guy has it straight off the bat. The other brilliant example of voice, um, a writer who's sadly no longer with us, um, is Roger Hobbs. He wrote a book called The Ghost Man, which sort of set the world on fire. Um, and Ro Roger sadly died a couple of years ago. He's only a very young fella. But dies. he wrote The Ghost Man when he was 21, I think. And it's just brilliant. The voice in that is just incredible. And um, I was sort of thinking, oh, my God, what's this guy going to be like when he's 30? Um, unfortunately, we never got to. To know that's very sad, but yeah, voice um, is incredibly, incredibly um, important to me, um, and it really stands out, and it stands out to everyone. You know, when you've got it, I always think of. Um, I think it was Johnny Cash who said that style is basically everything you can't play. Yes, I thought that was Absolutely. a really good way of putting it. Absolutely. Absolutely, you're you're right. I mean, and if you've a great voice and your own style, your own style, and you, that will make up. That'll cover so many sins. Like Bob Dylan is not the best singer in the world. <laughs> He's not even a good singer, really. He's not a good guitarist. Um, he's an exceptional songwriter, mm. 
and he writes songs that only Bob Dylan can do. And that's what makes him incredible. And he's got he's got his own voice and his own style. And that has changed, you know, throughout the years. But he's brilliant at being Bob Dylan. So as a writer, you have to be brilliant at being yourself. Exactly. And even though Bob Dylan's voice has changed, it's still him. And you always know it's him. It's still him. Yeah, exactly. You think, oh my God, this sounds like there's a box of snakes trapped underneath the bed. Oh no, it's Bob Dylan <laughs> singing. Uh, all right what work of yours do you recommend uh listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before um they can check out anything um uh 13 is out in america and the uk so you can check that out twisted um is a standalone you could try if you if you're worried about legal fillers some people worry about legal fillers um but don't worry about them i don't really like write legal procedurals um who yeah what else uh, my latest one's coming out in in july in the uk 50 50 would be a great place to start steve thank you so much for coming on the show not at all thank you very much Anthony. it's been a real pleasure and thank you all out there for listening to writing and breathing if you enjoyed the show why not become a patreon supporter patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published and other goodies so go to patreon.com slash writing and breathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you will find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.